before we talk about this passage this morning, I want to give you an assignment. I don't hand out too many assignments, but this will be one that you'll want to do. There's a prayer card that we're going to use in two weeks at a service here where you come up and you put your uh, prayer request in this envelope and then put it in a jar. And then we just, we don't read the stuff that we just pray over those things and then we send it back to you at the end of the year. So what's going to happen next week is I'm going to talk about the Lord's Prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. And that's going to help shape or give frame to what you put on the card. So my assignment is for you to go home and read verses 5 through 15 of chapter 6, which incorporates the Lord's Prayer. And don't write anything on the card just yet. Uh, but just think. Just think about this prayer. Think about how it's shaped. Think of how about how it's going to shape your prayer requests for the year. And then next week I'll preach on that text. And then you'll have a week to put down what you want on the card and put it in the jar two weeks from now. Okay? Assignment? Good. I'll be coming by each of your house later in the week, making sure you got that done. Now, uh, this week we're resuming our study on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's always helpful to to have sort of like a uh, a statement at the very beginning, because the Sermon on the Mount is about uh, how to live in the kingdom of God, how to... Once you've repented and you've got, you've come out of light, out of darkness into the light. How do you live in the light? How do you live in the kingdom? And it's basically how do you? What are the rules of the house? Some commentator has put it. And so it's very important for us to remember that Christianity doesn't begin with rules to keep, and then a God who blesses those who follow the rules. It's about a God who saves. And then gives people rules to follow. Does that make sense? We've got to make sure we have that right order because otherwise you come to the Sermon on the Mount and if you think it's God gives you rules and if you keep the rules then you get the blessing, then you're going to be very discouraged by the Sermon on the Mount. Because you're going to go home and just say, I just can't seem to get enough of this done. I'm never going to be sure if God really loves me or wants me. But God saves you completely by grace alone. Then he says, okay, now that you know that, now now that you're in touch with the the sacrifice that he has given, this is how you live inside the kingdom. And he's told us a number of things here. And today we're going to talk about anxiety. Now, when we read today's text, we can see immediately that, that we're breaking into the middle of one stream of thought. And we know we are because look at with me in verse 25. The very first word there is therefore. So whenever you see the word therefore, you ask this question, what is it therefore? In other words, it's something's been said previous to this moment. And basically in, in, in chapter, in the same chapter 19 through 24, Jesus has been making this foundational statement. And then he's going to say, therefore, now that you've got that foundation in place, don't be anxious. So we've got to know what that foundational statement is. And it comes back in verses 24 or 20, 19 through 24 when Jesus is saying, you have to choose who's going to be your master. You just have to decide what's your foundation. What are you standing on? Are you standing on me, the rock? Uh, the house that's built on the rock so that the wind comes and the waves come, it doesn't get knocked down? Or are you standing on some other thing, some other created thing that you hope, gosh, if I have that created thing, then, the, then my life's going to be all right. And he, Jesus is saying it's not going to be all right. 
But if you've decided to build your house on Christ, if he's the master, if you believe that there is a God who created the entire universe, he, he brought it into existence, he, he already has numbered your days, he has secured your internal inheritance, which nothing can destroy. He's bringing all things together for good. If you believe that he has defeated death itself and nothing can separate you from the love of God, if God is your master, then, or therefore, you don't need to be anxious. If all those things are true about God, and they are all true, if he's numbered your days, if he's called you before eternity, before time even began, if he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion, if all things are going to come together for good, then, or therefore, you don't have to worry. But if you've got your life based on something else, something in the world, your health, your family, prosperity, whatever it may be, then you're going to always be anxious. So the very first thing we have to have down in our mind is we, okay, we've got our feet planted on the rock. We, we are the servant of Christ. He is our master. Therefore, we don't have to be anxious. And Jesus addresses this anxiety in three ways, which is what we're going to look at. The, the call, don't be anxious. The, the reasons, he gives several reasons not to be anxious. And then number three, the root and response to anxiety. So the call, just see that he calls us not to be anxious. That's his word. That's his command. Then he gives us some reasons. And then what's the root of anxiety? That helps us to understand what our problem is and how do we respond to that. First, do not be anxious. The call, you see in verse 25, 27, 31, 34, I mean four times in these few verses, don't be anxious. One thing we can say for certainty is Jesus doesn't want us to be anxious. Anxious in the Greek means divided. To, to be drawn into different directions. So he's saying, I don't want you to be a divided person. I don't want you to be somebody who's drawn in different directions. And, and perhaps to get a feel for what Jesus is saying, it's helpful to see how he says it in a couple of different ways. First of all, you might be, you might be familiar with the parable of the sower. Remember that parable? The, the, the farmer scatters the seed and it falls on four different types of soil. It falls on that hard soil, it falls on the the soil that's very thin, shallow, and then it falls amongst the the thorns. You remember what the thorns are? The deceitfulness of wealth and the anxieties of life. You see, wealth and anxiety, they're like close cousins. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't be anxious don't be like that seed that gets that gets among the thorns that the anxieties of life actually draw you apart from Christ. You're, you're so anxious about things that are happening in your life, so anxious about things that are happening in the world, you just can't focus on Christ. And then another great picture. You remember this when Jesus visits some of his best friends, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha? And we don't know if it's a surprise visit, but it seems like surprising to Martha because she's not ready. So Jesus comes down, comes into the house, and not surprisingly, when Jesus comes into the house, guess what people want to do? Listen to Jesus. That's what I'd want to do if he came to my house. 
But Martha, what does she want to do? She wants to make sure everything's ready. I mean, gosh, I got to get food ready. And I didn't know he was coming. And she's got this busyness. And she's got a sister who's sitting at Jesus's feet. And instead of saying, I'm so glad my sister decided to do this. What does Martha do? Very passive aggressive, very <laughs> unattractive quality in case you have it. Work on it. <laughs> Don't you care, Jesus, about me? You see that passive aggressiveness? And then it just becomes demanding. Tell her to help me. Don't don't you care about me? Tell her to help me. Passive aggressiveness just turns into all aggressiveness. Martha, Martha. You're so worried. You're so divided. You're being pulled apart by many things. What does he say, Mary? Has chosen the one necessary thing. So that that's this idea. When Jesus is calling us to not be anxious, he knows there's all kinds of competitors. There's all kinds of busyness in your life. There's all kinds of thorns, all kinds of anxieties. He's not unaware of those things. And he's not saying you can't ever think about those things. He's just saying there's got to be something you think about that's above all of those things. There's got to be something that 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 uh, clears off the fog of your windshield. I have a car that always gets foggy. It doesn't matter what the temperatures are. And it drives me crazy. But how do I get rid of the fog? AC defrost, right? It's freezing outside. It's freezing inside of my car. I wouldn't recommend you driving with me. But I turn on the AC, whoosh, goes away. Why? Because this one thing drives everything else away or puts everything else into perspective so I can see. So I've got to, Jesus is saying, don't be anxious. So just, if you can just hear his call today to you, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious. Don't let busyness, don't let the anxieties of the world creep into your life that you get Drawn apart that you get divided from Jesus. He's got to be the single focus. Now, now maybe this will be helpful because sometimes I think, well, what am I not supposed to think about these things? They do make me concerned in some way. And I was listening to somebody explain it was helpful to me. Godly concern is this. I live in a broken world. I have relationships and responsibilities But I know God is with me, so I'm going to maintain a prayerful dependence on him. You hear that? That's godly concern. I I have roles and responsibilities. I'm living inside this broken world. But I know God is with me. So as I navigate through this broken world, I'm always knowing God's with me. And I'm, I'm, I'm maintaining this prayerful dependence on him. Versus anxiety. I live in a broken world that's not safe. And then this is what starts driving anxiety. It usually starts with what if. What if my children grow up like I want? What if my career doesn't turn out like what I had hoped? What if I don't get into college? What if I don't get married? What if I get a bad doctor's report? You see, the the what ifs are endless. And they start driving you. And two frequent responses to anxiety 
One is withdrawal. Just, there's too much and I withdraw. I just check out. Just, the, the world's got to figure itself out. I can't, I cannot be engaged in that. Or, uh, maybe more prevalent, hyper vigilant. Or helicopter mom. I see a problem and I'm a helicopter person. I, I've got to be hyper vigilant about it. I've got to make sure I'm controlling everything. It sure doesn't look God, like God's doing a good job, so I got to get in there and control. And what, what's, what's happening in my mind is I have this false narrative that says if I control circumstances, then events work out and I won't have to be anxious. If I control circumstances, then events work out so I don't have to be anxious. See, you don't want to be anxious, and your solution is, I control circumstances. But what happens? The very opposite. The more you become controlling, and the less you become faithful, the more anxious you become. So you see, you think you're getting towards less anxiousness, and what's happening is you're actually digging a deeper hole by getting your hands on it and not saying, God, I live in a broken world. I have a role. I have a responsibility. I'm going to maintain that, but I'm going to live in prayerful dependence on you that ultimately you're bringing things together for good in ways that I can't see or imagine. So I'm going to let you be God, and I'm just going to be Paul Phillips. Is that okay? And he's going to say, yeah, that's good. So then Jesus says, if my call, if my command isn't enough, let me give you some reasons. And so he gives several reasons. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Why? Don't be anxious about what you eat or drink or what you or about your body and what you will put on it. And this is why it is not life more than food. And the body more than clothing. See, your life is vastly more important than the external things that support your life. Your life is vastly more important than just the external things that support your life. But but we live in a very difficult place today with social media. Because with social media, it frequently looks like the external things are your life. So I just show you on my Facebook account or my Snapchat or my Instagram, I'm showing you my life. But what am I showing you? I'm just showing you external things. I happen to be at the beach today. I'm here. I'm with my friend. This is my meal. What, these are my new shoes. Whatever you put on your Instagram, which I love to follow. Just so fascinating. <clears throat> but you see what happens? It's like that's life. And God's saying, that's not life. Those are things around life, but that's not life. Your life is so much more important. And I was listening recently to something on the radio that, that was talking about how social media is a feeder for depression. And it, there, was a, there was a number of, of social media sites, and I can't remember that the number was five or six or seven, but there was a tipping point, like if you're, if you're on more than five social media sites, you're plugged into more than five, then your chances of depression start skyrocketing. There's an acronym that some of you know and use. I just learned about it. 
that it's it's created recently about this anxiety with social media. It's called FOMO, FOMO. You know this? You've used it? Fear of missing out. And here's the definition. Anxiety that an exciting event may currently be happening elsewhere initiated by posts seen on social media. So you're sitting at home, you're feeling like a loser, and your friends are out having fun, and you're like, I'm missing out. Everybody seems to be having fun except for me. And I get anxious about that. And I get anxious that why am I not invited, or why don't I have these kinds of friends, or why, you see what I'm saying? It just snowballs. And so we have a whole group of people that now are fed into social media thinking their life is the things around their life. And Jesus is trying to say, no, there's something else called your life than your shoes or your food. So one reason we don't want to worry about that is because God understands how important our life is. He's not going to let that life go. Secondly, don't be anxious because if God provides for nature, the birds, the flowers, and the grass... Then verse 26, our heavenly father, he's going to provide for his created beings created in his own image, which is you and I. So if we just look around and say, well, you know what? Birds wake up. They get something to eat and they go to bed. Grass comes up and grass withers. Flowers come. I mean, they all seem to do it according to God's times table. If it's working that way for them, it can work that way for me. I can trust God. Martin Luther says this, God makes the birds our schoolmasters. It is a great disgrace to us that in the gospel, a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and preacher. I love that. So just when you become anxious, maybe you could just walk outside. And you just you'll see a bird somewhere and say, "Okay, He's doing his part, but he's trusting God. I got to do my part, but I got to trust God. If I feel like I lack something, it's either I don't need it or God's going to provide it in another way. I'm just looking at how he's providing for creation and trusting that he's going to provide for me. Third, verse 32, don't be anxious because when you're anxious, if you're a Christian, if you're inside the kingdom and you're anxious, it's a bad witness to people who are outside the kingdom. See, you're the one who said, no, I've got God as my master. He's the one who's the creator. And I remember when I had my feet on another foundation and I was nervous because I could never tell if that foundation, my family, my health, my wealth was going to last. But now I'm over here at somebody, somebody named Jesus, who's the rock of my salvation, who's never going to leave me or forsake me, who's got my inheritance where nothing can destroy it. And if I'm over here biting my nails then what kind of witness is that to the people on the outside? You've got to be different. You've got to be different because you've got your feet on some other place. So constantly through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is using this phrase, don't be like them. Why? Because I built a whole church that would have a counter-narrative to the world's ways. A counter-narrative to lust. A counter-narrative to wealth. A counter-narrative to anxiety. And when people come in saying, I'm racked with anxiety, lust, and problems with wealth, they need to find people who aren't. 
who begin to uh, have victory in those areas to say, yeah, hey, I remember that. So don't be don't be like the Gentiles. Finally, this is maybe just a bit of practical advice. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. In other words, there will be troubles tomorrow. But sufficient for today, Jesus is saying, I'm giving you sufficient for today the trouble that you'd have. Now, you may find this surprising, but I didn't grow up watching the sitcom I Love Lucy. That was before my time, okay? But there's a famous skit in the I Love Lucy sitcom that even if you're young, you may have seen it. And if you haven't, you can go Google it when you get home. But it's a funny little skit where she's working on a conveyor belt. Anybody remember this skit? And she's sitting there. She's got like a chef's hat on and apron and little chocolates are coming off the conveyor belt. And she's supposed to wrap them and put them back on the conveyor belt. And they're like, you know, three or four feet apart. Conveyor belt's going slowly. So, you know, wrap, wrap. Well, then conveyor belt starts speeding up. Chocolates are now one foot apart. And she's like, I can't, I can't keep up. So she's, she starts eating them. And so every other one she's eating, well, she, she can't swallow. And then she takes her hat off. She starts putting them in a hat. Then she's like raking them off the side. It's so funny. Except if that's what you do with your troubles. See, this is what happens. We speed up. And we see down the road, uh-oh, these things are coming. And I've got to worry about them Today. And we speed up the troubles and we take tomorrow's troubles or next week's troubles or next year's troubles and we put them all on today. And Jesus says, I haven't given you enough for that. You're speeding up the conveyor belt. You just need to take the chocolates, the trouble, bittersweet chocolates that are coming today. And yes, you can see there are some coming down the conveyor belt, but you can't address those until you get to that day. So please don't speed them up and bring them into the day because you'll collapse under the weight of a lifetime of troubles and worries. So just take today and say, yes, this is a problem or yes, this is a wonderful day, but I can't pack in tomorrow's trouble in today. Very Very practical advice. Third, Jesus points out the root to our anxiety, and then he gives us uh, some response. Jesus is like a a great counselor. This is what I love about the Sermon on the Mount. He, He just digs right into root problems and says, hey, we just need to get down to this bottom spot. And he he exposes that the root of our anxiety is not psychological. You're not anxious and say, well, I've got some psychological problem. You're not anxious because you have a financial problem. You're not anxious because you have a physical problem. You're anxious because verse 30, very end of the verse, oh, you of little faith, when you're anxious, you have a theological problem problem I really want you to hear this because if you think it's a financial problem 
If you think it's a relational problem, if you think it's a health problem, you're going to go to a root that's not really the root. The root is you have a theological problem and you really don't have your feet on the master. Something else is your master. See, anxiety so often exposes an idol. So you get all worked up inside because of this relationship, because of this issue, because of this thing in my future. And the problem is you got to have that to really be happy. And so Jesus is saying, see, when, when this happens, it just shows you have little faith. You're the kind of person that today, because everything's going well, I got my feet planted on the rock. But tomorrow, when it doesn't look like God's doing what I want him to do, hey, I'm I'm little faith now. So how do I respond to little faith? Turn with me, if you would, to the right, Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Paul, in the book of Acts, is going on this series of missionary journeys. They're kind of like circles. He just keeps going wider and wider, and he ends up in Greece, and um, he ends up in Athens, a very famous sort of moment in Acts chapter 17, and he's at sort of the pinnacle of uh, intellectual thought in Athens. He's up on Mars Hill, if you think of the Parthenon. He's up in that area. He's talking with the top-tier educated people, and you get the feeling that it's not going very well. Not many people really respond. He's actually called a seed picker, which is a, a little sparrow, a little bird that they would have no value for in Greece. Oh, you're just a little seed picker. And he kind of gets dismissed, and he goes to Corinth, which is a very rough city, and every time he goes to a city, he goes into the synagogue to try to help the Jewish people who do understand something about the Bible. Hey, the Messiah has come. And he basically gets kicked out of the synagogue. And you can tell Paul's pretty discouraged. And he's, he's getting to the little faith place. And so God comes in a very miraculous way. Verse 9, Paul has this vision. And just notice what Jesus says to him. Do not be afraid. Don't be anxious. Just like in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just calling you, Paul. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Why? Why should I not be afraid? Why should I not be anxious? God says this over and over in the Bible. Then notice what he says. Don't, but go on speaking. In other words, don't shrink back. See, I can tell what's happening with your anxiety. You're just about ready to stop talking. You're about ready to get disengaged from the culture, and I need and want you to be engaged in the culture. So, Paul, don't shrink back. Paul wasn't going to have the problem with being the helicopter uh, evangelist here. He was going to be the person who withdrew. So don't shrink back. Don't check out, Paul. Then what does he say? For I am with you. See, it may, it may look like it's not going well, but I haven't forgotten you. I am with you. 
I do not want you to be anxious. I do not want you to disengage. I need my church. I need my people to be engaged in the world. I want you to know that I am with you. And finally, I have many people in this city. In other words, I'm going to send people to surround you to encourage you. So if you're a little faith person today, and all of us at some point are little faith people, we need to be reminded that, that God's word is still speaking to us to say, don't be anxious, don't be afraid. I'm taking care of the whole world. I can take care of the problems in your world. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. This is the whole, one of the whole purposes of communion. I'm still with you. I'm here. I'm walking alongside of you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And finally, I'm going to send people around. Because no, no, no man, no woman is supposed to walk alone. So I'm going to send people that would be an encouragement to you. So today, to this, this morning after the service is over, if it's helpful for you, if you need someone to just hold your hand and pray for you, the, I'll be up here, another elder will be up here. And you may be the little, you, know, you may have come in and said, I'm the little faith person today. I, I'm divided. I find myself trying to control and, and I need somebody just to pray for me. So we want to provide that for you. But I want to end before we get to communion with a testimony. It's going to be a testimony on the screen. And I'll send the whole thing to you, but it's the last four minutes or so of this woman's testimony. Her name is Vanitha Rendall Reisner. I believe that's how you say her name. And in the first four or five minutes, the first half of this video that we won't see, what you find out is that she contracted polio. Uh, when she was three months old, and due to a doctor's error, she became paralyzed. And from that point to 13, in order to, to regain some mo- mobility, she had 21 different surgeries. She eventually got married and had an infant son who had some problems but was getting better, and she went to the doctor and the, the main doctor she'd been seeing wasn't there, but his partner was there and said, well, you know, Paul, I think was the boy's name, is doing so much better. I think we can take him off the medication, and they shouldn't have advised that. And he died at two months old. It'll say here in the part that you say that her husband eventually had an affair and left her. And the reason I'm showing this video is because what happens with fear and anxiety, the reason we have it is because we're so afraid things aren't going to work out right. That's when you get anxious. That's when you get fearful. And that anxiety and that fear can quickly lead to anger towards God. And I've felt it firsthand. I have a way in which God should operate. And when he doesn't operate that way, I get anxious. And that anxiety quickly goes to anger. And that anger gets shot towards God. And I just can't believe that he exists. Or if he does, he's crueler than I could imagine. 
that happens to almost everybody in a lifetime somewhere. And that may be you. And I felt like this woman's testimony was very helpful if you find yourself in that place. She starts out saying this, and you'll hear it. I'm mad at you if you do exist. This is her thoughts towards God. But you probably don't because you wouldn't be that cruel. So we'll pick up with her testimony here. And then we can go from there. Okay. I, I guess I really didn't think about God that much, but whenever I did, I just felt, I'm, I'm mad at you if you do exist. But you probably don't because you wouldn't be that cruel. I remember just saying, okay, God, if you're real, show me. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I should look at the Bible. And I had had a Bible that when I got, when I was confirmed, which was years before in our church, and didn't really ever open it. I mean, I think it's still in the plastic. So I, like, unwrapped it and sat on my bed. I'm like, okay, show me that you're real. You know, I flipped open. I remember reading all kinds of stuff, thinking, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me. Why did all this happen? Like, explain this to me. And I flipped over the Bible to John 9. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus says, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God would be displayed in his life. I just felt like God was talking to me. It was unlike any experience I'd had before. It became completely clear to me. God had a purpose in my life. I just felt like God must be completely against me. I really, really thought I couldn't make it. And there are days that I would just like lay on the floor of my room and just cry and say, God, you've got to get me through this. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. There is trouble, and God knows there's trouble, but God rescues us in the midst of trouble and not necessarily from it. And I found that to be even a deeper promise than you won't have trouble, but I'm going to be with you in it. I felt like God was like, you need to forgive, because this is the love that changes the world. And... At first, I was like, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to forgive. I got polio because the doctor made a mistake. The doctor made a mistake, and that's why Paul died. My ex-husband's affair. You know, there's just a lot of different things I've had to forgive. And I remember people kept saying to me, you don't seem bitter. Why are you not bitter? And it was God. It wasn't like I was making this choice not to be bitter. But at the same time, it was a, every time something would come up where I would get angry, it was giving it back to God and saying, okay, God, I'm asking you to take this.
I think my disability went, went from being something that made me bitter to something that really drew me to God and made me more dependent on Him. Every time, like through all the different types of suffering, um, what's really pulled me out or pulled me through is God's walking with me. And that to me has been bigger and worth every second of suffering, which sounds crazy even as I sit here and tell you that, but it has anchored my faith in a way that, you know, I think people, when you read the Bible and you understand truth, then you say, this makes sense to me. But then people can argue you out of that. I mean, I've seen people with faith just kind of say, well, it doesn't make sense now, and I'm not sure, and other people are telling me things. But when you go through the fire and God is right there, like, I know He's real. He's there. He's walked with me. I think adversity, if we turn to God in it, it keeps us from walking away because we need him. We know him in a different way as not just the giver of good gifts, but the, the one who walks with us. And I don't think you see that many people who get the sense of God's presence, God walking with them, unless they call out to him and they need him. Having a mom who's pointing me to the Lord even when things are tough, and that's an understatement, um, I guess really made me the believer that I am today. The Lord has done this for a purpose. We don't know what it is, but we wait. I feel like it was God's grace to give me suffering because it has made me deeper and made me love God, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. several things I like about that video, even in its tragedy, that it's, it's still uneven, you know? I knew without a doubt God had a purpose for me. 30 seconds later, I didn't think I could make it. And then just the visual of what was around her was God's word. You just notice how she was reading it. It was written around her. And then people, they were around a table and she has a um, husband. She has a daughter. She has a dad who says, I don't know. But I can wait. You, you, you are going to experience this, some of these kinds of moments. I hate to break it to you. And you're going to need the Word of God. You're going to need the people of God. And communion is such a great moment for that because you come to a table and you're reminded that God is with you. But even when you don't feel His presence, you're walking next to somebody here who's got you by the arm saying, I, I, I'll... If you can't make it today, I'll carry you. Don't, you don't have to you don't have to be anxious
because there's a God who's our master, who is good. And we may have to wait. But in the waiting, we can trust him. So on the night Jesus was crucified, he knew his anxious disciples would have to wait. And he said, so I, I don't want you to forget. I want you to do this in remembrance of me that I, I'm, I'm good on my promises. I'm good to, to cover all of your sin and all of the sins of the world because I'm going to have paid that price. So if you're a believer, especially of little faith, come to the table. Come be surrounded by your family who will help you, who will encourage you as you make your way through this life. Lord, bless your people with these common elements for encouragement, for strength, for hope. In Jesus' name, amen. The deacons will help your rows come out, and you come with a heart that's prepared.